Hi, I'm Callum Borshers, and as we work, the rules around rude behavior in the office are changing. Getting on calls, there's not as much, how was your weekend, this and that, that you used to get in the office, and it's more just like, let's get down to business, and let's get on the call, and I don't think that's seen as rude anymore. Um, I think just not greeting your teammates in the morning was considered a rude thing to do, but now a wave is pretty sufficient. When I first started work back in the late 90s, people would joke and the kind of emails people would send as jokes to each other. Office banter, I think you'd probably call it, would be seen as unacceptable now. This is As We Work from the Wall Street Journal, a show about the changing workplace and everything you need to know to navigate it. That was Courtney O'Donnell, Rogers Unoha, and James Hardesty. Coming up on the show, what's professional appearance these days? Do emojis have any place in business communications? And why isn't anyone responding to my Slack message? Is business etiquette simply changing with the times? Or are people just acting ruder at work? Stay with us. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Tell me if you've heard this complaint from your coworkers. What happened to our b-ing manners? Some of us are quitting on shorter notice, texting our friends during meetings, and ghosting people when we don't feel like talking anymore. At least that's how it feels to the etiquette police. Others say the working world isn't so much getting ruder as changing with a new generation and a new attitude post-pandemic. Some people just aren't interested in making friends on the job. Happy hour? Hard pass. What might come off as cold could simply be someone's effort to separate their work life from their personal life. A little later in the show, the etiquette empress, yes, that's what she calls herself, will join us with a lesson on how to act in the workplace. And a lot of people want advice. LinkedIn reports August enrollment in its most popular business etiquette courses was up 127% year over year. But there's still the question of why people are acting certain ways at work now. Tessa West is a professor of psychology at New York University and the author of Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers, and What to Do About Them. She's here to help shed some light on the moment we're in. Welcome, Tessa. Or should I call you Dr. West? We are talking about proper etiquette after all. <laughs> Tessa, please. <laughs> Definitely right. Tessa. We'll keep it casual then. But I guess in that vein, I mean, there is a real question that a lot of people have in their minds right now, which is like, how do we even know what is rude or not rude in the office these days? Yeah, I mean, it seems like right now everything could potentially be rude. There used to be these very explicit rules of do's and don'ts. And you came into a workplace, you learned the norms. Those are the rules. They stuck. They didn't really change. And now what we're finding is that these rules, they're changing rapidly. So something that you did yesterday is all of a sudden super offensive in like two months. How much of that awkwardness or tension then is just generational or, or, or cultural? I mean, one person's perception of rudeness, maybe somebody else just trying to be inclusive or casual and friendly. 
Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people focus on cohort effects or age effects for this, mostly just because we didn't see it in older folks at work, right? Baby boomers did not have this issue. And I'm actually not so sure. I think it's actually kind of a combination of a bunch of different things, changing political climates, you know, issues around politics that all of a sudden we can't talk about at work, but we sort of have to because of the COVID pandemic. You know, so we're now sort of blending in all these different worlds. And I think what you see are certain generations are just more comfortable calling people out than others generations. I think that's definitely been the case. All right. So there are judgment calls, right? But I mean, what sorts of indisputably jerky behaviors are you noticing that inspire the title of your book? You know, some of the major things we see are just types of behaviors that people use, like anything to get ahead. So Machiavellianism, kicking down. Anytime you see someone who sort of paints one picture in front of the boss or high status people and a completely different one in front of low status people, then those alarm bells should go off. That means there's probably some etiquette violations or just work jerkery going on because they're not comfortable kind of being the same person all around. When we think about who's violating these rules, we often think about people who are mean, who are ill-intentioned, but a lot of the work jerks are actually people who are just kind of disengaging and disappearing. People like free riders at work or, you know, people who are quiet quitting and because of that, their teams are having to pick up their slack. So that's also another form of this that we're actually seeing a lot of going on right now. Why are people rude? I mean, is it all about power or do some of them just not know any better? Something else entirely? What's going on? So I study accuracy and person perception. And one of the main findings we know is that people have no sense of how other people see them. I mean, not no sense. That's obviously an exaggeration. But they're not very good at knowing, on average, how their behavior is perceived by other people, especially when they're in power. And that's because we don't give people a lot of good feedback. When we do give them that feedback, it's often kind of sandwiched in between overly positive feedback and an effort to be nice, engage in friendly overtures. Giving people this kind of honest feedback is really uncomfortable, so we avoid doing it. So all people hear time and time again is kind of this overly positive feedback or no feedback at all. And from there, they don't really know what to deduce. No feedback at work, that is negative feedback. Tessa, I'm hoping you can sort of check my layman's theory of uh, part of the explanation of why people may be more rude these days, which is that they may be just feeling less worried about the consequences, like, hey, it's a pretty good job market. I can just move on to another place. I mean, is there a sense that we're immune to backlash? People aren't feeling those consequences because they have the option of hopping from job to job. They can be a total jerk at one place and the consequences are just very small for them. They can just kind of hop to a new job and even in a new industry where they know no one, it's a brand new social network. It's kind of like I can date whoever I want in Memphis and screw up all those relationships and then move to LA and start clean. It's a little bit like that right now in the workplace. You know, you're making me think, too, how in a conventional office environment, I mean, if you offended a colleague, you might have to run into that person in the kitchen and it would be kind of this awkward conversation that that may be less so right now in in hybrid or remote workplaces. And I wonder how those structures of our contemporary work lives are contributing to the problem that you're describing. Yeah, they absolutely are. I would say not only did you run into them in the kitchen, but you ran into them in the kitchen for 30 years because you didn't really leave jobs as much as you do now, right? And so now you can just be completely avoidant. And I think we're all learning these avoidant strategies. We've become very good at them. I mean, I know I have. People are honing their avoidance skills instead of honing their early conflict skills. But now in most workplaces, you can just leave and say, okay, you know, Why do I have to have that conflict conversation? I'm just going to go on the market. I'm just going to get a new job in the next 48 hours. This is another really basic why question for you, which is why does it hurt our feelings? 
to be on the receiving end of bad etiquette. We spoke with a sales executive named Steve Landrum, who complains about prospective clients ghosting him, right? Showing initial interest, then suddenly they cut off communication. He says it's happening more often than ever in his 30-year career, and this is how it makes him feel. When ghosting occurs, it's kind of the anti-action of how we're wired. We tend to take that personally. We tend to take it as a stab. It is offensive uh, because we're trying to have a relationship with somebody that we we we're, we're, we like. We're we're trying to pursue that, and when that person goes away, uh, it's very much like um, uh, boyfriend girlfriend when the when the other party just walks away. That's hurtful. Yeah, Steve, you know, first off, you're in good company. Ghosting is like insane right now. And some of us who are around at the time of internet dating kind of know what this ghosting feeling feels like. My 70-something-year-old mom is dealing with it. She's on Match.com and she hates it. Nobody likes it because ostracism is sort of like the fundamental form of social rejection. And it doesn't matter if it's a romantic partner or your kid or your best friend or some random you don't even know who doesn't show up on day one or who doesn't return your recruitment call. It hurts. It really tugs at our our, our very basic kind of human need for social connection. What goes on in our brains when we experience good business etiquette. And I'll give you another example. I talked to an education recruiter named Grace Olivia Crossan, who believes that her nice manners helped her get hired earlier this year. The way that I got my current job is I sent a thank you video after the interview. I immediately sent it within like 10 minutes. They said they had never received a video thank you before. So clearly there was a novelty factor there, Tessa, but how else does a gesture like that influence the recipient? Yeah, that makes people feel really special. I think getting a thank you note or a thank you letter can really go really far. People underestimate the value of these kind of small social behaviors, sending flowers to someone or a thank you note. I I remember one person sent me tea once when I helped her with some statistics problems she was having. And you never forget those things, but they're just not part of our culture right now. We're so focused on just being pissed off all the time (laughs) that we don't actually think of doing those little things. And I do think people like that are going to get the heads up. They're, They're going to end up getting those positions that others aren't getting because it's showing professional professionalism, you know, and that's really lacking. It's There's like a desert out there right now when it comes to those kind of small professional etiquette behaviors. Uh, as you look ahead, Tessa, I mean, I wonder if you're optimistic that business etiquette is going to make a comeback or, or do you just fear a continuing decline here? I do feel like right now we're at a race to the bottom. I feel like there's very much this kind of war between the employee and the employer, and there's very little trust between these two camps of people. And until we actually kind of heal that part of the relationship and and learn to communicate better, stop the avoidance, stop the disengagement, we're going to keep on this cycle. You know, I, I think this kind of answer to the great resignation or this rapid turnover isn't fit issues. It, it's really psychological issues that are underlying people's mental states when they're going to work, the boss and the employee. You know, avoidance is the theme that keeps coming up. So maybe the solution in a way is somewhat counterintuitive. What do you think about teaching people not necessarily how to be kinder to each other, but how to actually be in conflict with each other, but but do it in an appropriate, constructive way? Yeah, that's my that's my MO is like kindness is so great, but you know, you have to learn how to have conflict. In fact, 
Learning how to have conflict is the biggest predictor of a successful relationship of any type. If you're not having conflict, that means you're not talking. That means you're you're avoiding your issues because all relationships have problems. You have to have it early and often and specifically. It can't be about like broad generalizations, like you don't trust me or you don't like me or you know whatever. It has to be about a specific thing you did, why it bugged you, and what you think it meant, and then clear up what it actually meant resolve it, move on. People hate the word conflict. They think it means something bad, but not having it leads us into this mess that we're in. Tessa West is a professor of psychology at New York University and the author of Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. Tessa, thank you for being so genteel with us. We'll strive for just a little bit of conflict next time, though. (laughs) Thank you so much. Even if you've got impeccable manners and think you're a pro at conflict resolution, we could all probably use a little polishing after the last couple of years. Next, we're going to Business Etiquette Boot Camp with an expert who says it's important to show grace to those who are unfamiliar with the do's and don'ts. Fair warning, though, her patience runs out at emojis. Stay with us. This message comes from Viking committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Where do we learn corporate etiquette, anyway? For some, the first teachers are parents with white-collar jobs. Their lessons aren't necessarily explicit, but kids pick up on how they dress, speak, and interact with others. But many people don't grow up learning etiquette by osmosis. And for them, there's Tony Purvis. She's the founder of the School of Disruptive Etiquette in Washington, D.C., and calls herself the Etiquette Empress. She coaches young professionals on how to avoid faux pas, and she's here to answer some of your questions and mine about what's appropriate these days. Welcome, Tony. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So I want to know more about your work, but first I'd love to hear more about your own experience. Uh, In college, I understand you interned at a major investment bank, and you were the first person in your circle to enter that world. And you've written that you were, quote, young, black, female, and clueless. What didn't you know? (laughs) There were so many things I had to get acclimated to with corporate culture, moving from an academic space to a more professional space, and then corporate America, and then Wall Street at that. I love to talk about what I wore the first day of my internship. It was a bright red dress suit that I wore that was a hand-me-down from a family friend because I was first-generation corporate and that no one before me had had that career track or that professional experience. And so I had no clue what to wear. I quickly learned that that was not necessarily appropriate for an intern to wear. (laughs) They call it banker gray for a reason, right? But I wonder, I mean, in that vein, I mean, things like that, that maybe other people perceive as over the top or rude. I wonder how common it is for those things to actually be caused by somebody just simply being unfamiliar with certain business customs. Correct. I think it all boils down, honestly, to exposure and experiences and how many of those things you've had before you enter this new culture or environment, atmosphere, or workspace. And some people are afforded those opportunities and others aren't, depending upon uh, sometimes where they went to school or where they grew up. There are geographical influences. There are socioeconomic influences. 
Certain things really are just rude, though, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder when, when, when you were launching your School of Disruptive Etiquette a few years ago, uh-huh. what, what were you noticing about the state of business etiquette? Is it getting worse? <laughs> okay, so worse might be a bit harsh. I'll say it's changing. Is it fair to be euphemistic and say it's evolving? How does that sound? <laughs> That's very gentle. That's a very, I guess, uh, a polite way to put it. But what are you seeing on the ground? The major culprit, I'd say, that has contributed to the evolution of my curricula as an etiquette instructor has been technology for sure. Technology has shifted face-to-face communication. So oftentimes I'm teaching things like handshaking and eye contact, or sometimes you have to pick up the phone versus send a text message. Well, Tony, I'm hoping that you can very briefly take me and some of our listeners to a business etiquette boot camp. <laughs> Professional appearance, which is admittedly a subjective thing. And you hinted at it, Tony, with your with your red uh, power suit on day one of an internship. And I'm also thinking of things like uh, tattoos and piercings, uh, bold hairstyles. What What's OK? Yeah, you're seeing, again, another shift here on the horizon for employers becoming way more inclusive when it relates to body art, to piercings, to tattoos, also to hair textures, hair colors, even facial hair. You're seeing that beards, especially in some conservative spaces, that beards are are permitted or welcomed. And whereas you Let's clock in 10 years ago where uh, everyone was clean shaven as relates to uh, law and technology and banking and uh, more conservative spaces. So I'd say that there is more of a willingness to uh, embrace those who do have, again, tattoos, piercings, um, and that even in the interview phase that these things are more accepted than they were several years ago. I imagine it's somewhat industry-specific to banking, maybe different from interviewing for a job as a creative director, which brings me to uh, the first question I want to pose to you from uh, a listener. I want to begin with uh, a man named Cole Weiser. Uh, He is the creative director at a marketing agency in Texas, and he told us that he recently felt self-conscious about using a certain word on the job. In a client call, I caught myself saying, uh, y'all, if you are from a certain region that has a, a pervasive, uh, you know, ab- abbreviation <laughs> of some common words. Um, is it safe to dip into your past and who you are normally in a business setting and lead with casualness and who you are? So how about it, Tony? I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear you weigh in on, on y'all specifically, uh, but I'd also love to hear you respond to Cole's broader question, which is about speaking in a way that's authentic to your own region and culture. I'm a bit biased because I am from Texas and y'all is a part of my vernacular. <laughs> so, <laughs> so simply with this question, I think, again, that there is more of an accepting view for that authenticity. And so I would ultimately advise that this is okay. I think there's less focus on those minor granular things, but what are you saying overall and are you bringing value to to what you're saying or being an asset to the conversation? So I think if it becomes more habitual and you're using it often to where it becomes a distraction, that might be where you want to check in. But otherwise, I think it's perfectly fine and that there shouldn't be any following judgment or sanctions as a result of using things that are specific specific to your geography. Well, whatever people think of y'all, at least it is universally understood. But we spoke with a man named Phoenix Norman. He's the chief of staff at a tech company in California, Tony. And he says he's annoyed and sometimes baffled by some of the lingo that younger colleagues use in electronic communications. Mm -hmm. He thinks the uh, LOLs and emojis have gone too far. And this is what he's wondering. 
My concern is the use of the English language is being butchered. It's being butchered to the point where it's almost embarrassing. I get the the sort of flex that people are are、um, engaging in with regard to the language, but I I feel that it's going in such a poor direction, and there are no reins being pulled. So Tony, is Phoenix being too rigid here, or are in fact the run-on sentences, comma splices, and alternative spellings out of control? <laughs> I think I tend to be a little more conservative here myself. I will say I don't think there is a place for、uh, emojis, specifically in professional communication. Maybe if it's internal, like to your team, or、uh, if there are things where you're communicating again in an informal way, for sure. But there has to be a line drawn. Of course, a popular channel, at least internally at many companies, is instant messaging.、Uh, Tony, I'm old enough to remember AOL Instant Messenger. I don't know. I don't know if you are, but <laughs> as am I. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 of course, the contemporary version of that for business communications is is Slack. And our friend Phoenix also has some very strong opinions about the proper speed of communication on that platform. I won't say instantaneous because we're all busy, but I'd say I'd say the length of a meeting, for instance, you know, a few minutes max, if possible.、Um, but like waiting all day for the return of a Slack, you know, inquiry is pretty much the most disrespectful thing <laughs> you can do on a Slack channel. Is that too extreme, Tony? Pretty much the most <laughs> disrespectful thing you can do. Is he right about the Slack reply time? Sure. So again, where we are seeing such shifts technologically when it comes to communication, what I used to advise is, you know, 24 hours is a great turnaround. I think you have to consider the industry and the organizational culture as well. And so, if you are in fast-moving spaces like real estate or sales or banking, where a deal. Can expire in less than a minute. It is important that you are responding very quickly, but maybe in slower-paced industries or sectors.、Uh, I think it all is about being mindful of what the culture is where you are. And so, I don't think I go to the extreme of saying <laughs> that,、um, but I would say the general rule of thumb is respond as soon as you can. So never sit on responding to someone, but make sure you're building in those boundaries and those parameters as well. You know, I mean, I wonder if in the end here, though, Tony. I mean, a lot of these,、uh, you know, business norms are, are kind of subjective, and, and maybe part of our own etiquette work、uh, it needs to be also giving a little grace, being more patient with our colleagues. What do you think? Oh, completely, one hundred percent. If there's any main takeaway, it is that, especially post pandemic as well, where there are so many unseen factors that are weighing into how people's personal lives are affecting their professional lives, etc. I think it's a good practice in general just to be more graceful,、uh, and also to have more grace with others, and that applies to yourself as well. That you're showing yourself grace in all of these things too. Well,、uh, Ms. Tony Purvis, ma'am, you you run a very tight boot camp. Have, have I graduated? You have graduated with honors, summa cum laude. All right, all right. That's what we like to hear.、Uh, Tony Purvis, thank you so much for sharing some of your time with us and your expertise. It's been my pleasure. Thank you again for having me. And no wonder people aren't sure how to behave at work. Companies aren't necessarily being transparent, at least when it comes to telling applicants what a job really entails. That opening for a self-starter to join a fast-paced business with a family atmosphere. Well, we'll show you how to read between the lines in our pro tip next. Robert Half research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. 
Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. And finally today, our pro tip, that useful piece of career advice from one of the journal's life and work reporters. Ray Smith has been looking into some of the coded language in job listings, and it turns out some of the terms that describe the ideal candidate are actually throwing up red flags for some applicants. Ray, welcome back. Thank you for having me. There is some data on this, right? I mean, we've seen surveys by Glassdoor, for example, showing that terms like self-starter and hustle have more negative than positive connotations, according to people who are reviewing. So we do see attitudes shifting. I wonder if the language in the ads themselves is also changing in response. One of the things that one of the hiring managers I talked to suggested is that you know, they might want to write things like, yes, you know, we're fast-paced, because on the face of it, fast-paced could be a good thing, right? You want to be somewhere that's not slow-paced. But adding something language like, you know, we do care about work-life balance, or we do care about your life outside of work, or something that that signals to the applicant that, yes, we're fast-paced, but we're not going to be jerks about it. Mm. What do people think when they see a fast-paced environment right now? Is that code for something? A lot of people that I talked to and, and young people that I saw sharing their observations on social media did think that fast paced was code for you were going to get in here and we're going to burn you out or we're going to work you to death or you're not going to have time for anything else except work. So some of these terms you know, have been around for a long time and companies sort of resort to them and rely on them. And what we're seeing now is just this really critical view of what that really means. Well, let me run another one by you then. Maybe you can play interpreter for us, Ray, based on the people you've talked to when there's a phrase like, we're like a family. How are job seekers reading that kind of terminology? One of the interpretations is that you're going to sort of be subject to verbal abuse or even psychological abuse, or that like a family means you're not going to have any private life or personal life, or like a family means you're going to be smothered and smothered with with work and toxic people. And so that just really is one of the terms that irks people, job applicants. I mean, we saw in one survey that like a family quadrupled in use. And we were surprised by that because it's it's such a turnoff for people that, that maybe companies will get it and stop stop using that term. On the flip side of that, companies, they're trying to convey that we're in an atmosphere where people get along. I, I guess if you're a job seeker out there who's wondering, okay, what should I be on the lookout for, Ray? What kind of tips can you offer for them? I mean, what other red flag phrases should be on people's radar? Sure. Things like work hard, play hard, on the face of it sounds like um, you're going to get to do both in equal measure, but it usually means you're going to be working really hard. When someone encounters terms like these, it doesn't mean that you should just not apply at all. It gives you an opportunity to sit down with the interviewer and ask about those terms, like what do they mean in practice? Or doing your own homework on social media and websites like like Fishbowl or Glassdoor and just at, trying to find as many you know former or current employees as you can um, who can give you sort of the, the real tea, if you will, on, on what the company is really like. 
Well, Bray Smith, life and work reporter, I don't know whether joining us is actually in your job description or not, but I'm very glad that you did. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. And speaking of doing your homework, our team is taking some time off to do just that, getting ready for the next set of episodes. As we work, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with even more advice for making your way through the changing world of work. Like the show? Tell your friends to subscribe and give us a five-star review on your favorite platform. As We Work is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Charlotte Gartenberg is our producer. Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. Scott Soloway is our supervising producer. Jessica Fenton is a patient tiger. And our sound engineer. Our music was composed by Hansdale Sue. Kateri Yoakum is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Callum Borchers. Thanks for listening. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.